Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, friends. Benny here. This week's episode of Juanced was recorded in front of a live audience as a Juanced Live podcast event, co-sponsored by the Orange County Community Scholar Program. The voice you'll hear at the beginning of today's show is Aria Katz, CSP's founder and chair. CSP is dedicated to bringing the best Jewish thinkers, writers, artists, and musicians in the world to Orange County, California, the greater USA, and the world. For more information, visit them at www.occsp.net. These times more than most, we understand the challenges of connecting an audience with creative and meaningful content. If you're looking to engage your community, we've got the perfect solution for you. Introducing Juance Live. Just like on the show, we can be engaging, inquisitive, and witty in person too. Our unique talent in bringing out complexity, nuance, and captivating content from guests doesn't end at the studio door. Whether you're interested in hosting a live, dedicated podcast with audience participation or having us moderate your organization or community's next panel event, we've got the perfect solution for you. Plus, with our extensive network and connections to a broad range of fascinating guests on a range of topics, Juwan's got you covered. For more information on how to engage Juwan's Live for your next event, visit us today at www.juwan's.com. Our topic for today is called Juwants Live, which is based on the Juwants podcast that Dan and Benny hold. And um, I just wanted to thank all of you for being supporters of CSP, for coming back time and time again. Many of you have attended over 200 programs in the last 16 months, and um, we're working on getting you a master's or some kind of degree for that. I'll say a few words about our guests, and we'll jump right in. So um, Dan Pfefferman is an author, speaker, and researcher who focuses on Israel, the Jewish world, and the Middle East. He's published numerous articles, policy papers, books, and speaks regularly on Israel and around the world. You've met him uh, when we did our uh, CSP uh, virtual travel adventure to the UAE. And if you didn't meet him then, then you're meeting him now. There's much more about him on uh, the information sheet that I shared. Benny Shoulder is co-host of the podcast Juanced with Dan Pfefferman. He's director of sales North America at Kenes um, Tours, uh, Israel's leading provider of incoming tourism services. He's originally from Minneapolis and um, made his way to Israel as Dan uh, did, made his way to Israel uh, from the United States. So the two Americans, um, Rabbi Tamar Elad Applebaum, I assume you did not grow up in America and you have yeah, no connection. Yeah, I grew up other, here in Israel. Other than spending, I think you spent some time here. So let me say a few words about Rabbi. Um, I don't know whether you like it. I don't, I don't know how you like to be referred to, but right now I can use the whole name, Rabbi Tamar Elad Applebaum, Rabbi Elad Applebaum, Rabbi Applebaum. Rabbi, Rabbi Tamar is perfect. Okay, we'll go with Rabbi Tamar. Um, Rabbi Tamar is co-founder of the Beit Midrash for Israeli Rabbis, a joint project of the Hamidrashah Educational Center for Israeli Judaism and Shalom Hartman Institute. She's the founder of um, Kilat Zion in Jerusalem, 
Uh, many of us or some of us attended her services when we were in Israel with our group a few years ago. Her work spans and links tradition and innovation working toward Jewish spiritual and ethical renaissance. She devotes much of her energy to the renewal of community life in Israel and the struggle for human rights. She served as a rabbi of congregation Magen Avraham in the Negev, um, as a congregation rabbi in the New York suburbs alongside Rabbi Gordon Tucker and as assistant dean of the Schechter Rabbinical Institute, uh, Seminary in Jerusalem. 2010, she was named by the Ford as one of the five most influential female religious leaders uh, in Israel for her work promoting pluralism and Jewish freedom. I've been working hard to try to get um, Rabbi Tamar to CSP, and she is so busy that the only way to do it was to hire the team of Dan and Benny in Israel to interview her for us in Israel. So I'm going to uh, mute myself. I'm gonna turn over the reins to Amy Robinson, Katz, my wife, who will help facilitate the questions at the end. I have to go to a meeting here, but I wanted to welcome you all again. Thank you for being with us and um, looking forward to this program. Thank you, Dan. I turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Ari, and uh, welcome, everybody. Benny, you want to kick us off? Greetings out there in podcast land, everybody, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. And I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are excited to bring you another great episode, this time of Juanced Live. And it is being co-sponsored by the Orange County Community Scholar Program. We are so thrilled to be here. So before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to all of you and our audience today for watching us live on Zoom and our audience on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening later on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you could be watching now. Check it out on our Facebook page. Uh, and uh Check it out when we record or watch all of our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juance Podcast, as well as our website, www.juance.com. Make sure you're following us on all our social media. We are on Instagram at Juance, Twitter at Juance Podcast. And of course, make sure to subscribe to Juance on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a good review. How you doing, Benny? I'm doing good, Dan. How you doing? Fantastic. So you know what I just realized as we're about to jump into this, what I... Imagine will be a fascinating conversation with Rabat Tamar. Is um, literally a year ago we had our fourth episode of Juanced right before Tisha B'Av, and that is the last time we uh, also had a fascinating uh, Israeli female rabbi on the show. Um, your That's colleague, right. uh, I'm assuming you know each other, Chaya Becker. And ah, uh, we didn't course. plan it this way, but uh, it worked out fantastically. So normally. This is a very long podcast for those of you who want to join us, but because it is a Juanced Live, we will uh, skip all the usual banter because you're not here for us. You're here to, to hear the, uh, the brilliant and inspirational Rabbi Tamar. Um, so we thank you all for, uh, for bringing us here. There's a lot to get into because there's so many fascinating stories here. So let's just jump to it. Um, Tamar, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Now, for those of you in America, who, um, and I, I think most of you here in America, uh, a female rabbi is, of course, you know, run of the mill. In fact, I think there are more female rabbis than male rabbis, certainly, you know, as the majority of American Jews are, are not Orthodox. But in Israel, it's not a common thing to, to have a woman rabbi. So how did you grow up? And, and kind of let's talk about how you got to be uh, who you are today. Wow. My question, my parents ask themselves the very same question until today. <laughs> So first I want to say shalom to Dan and to Benny and to Daraba. Thank you to Ari and to Amy and to each and every one of you. It's wonderful to meet 
Uh, it's been a very long time since many of us met or visited each other, either in Israel, in Jerusalem, and other places, and uh, I in America, and I'm very, very thrilled and so happy and honored to be here and spend time together. Um, when I was young, I had no idea that it would even be an option to think about being a woman rabbi. My parents had a plan for me. I was supposed to grow up and uh, marry and have children and uh, be a wonderful uh, Jewish woman uh, holding a life uh, of value. Um, but uh, had anyone asked me the question if I would become a rabbi, it would, I, I wouldn't even understand the question. I grew up in a world which was very, very religious. I would even say ultra-Orthodox at a time. I grew up when I was young in the world of Chabad and um, received a very from kind of education. And uh, in the world in which I grew up in, in there was a lot of uh, beauty which goes with me and escorts me uh, until today. Beauty of people who had a very naive and um, very optimistic view on each other and on the world. And in a very peculiar way, that same way of looking at the world enabled me suddenly when I realized that a woman could become a rabbi to delve into such a new and such a, a foreign journey for me. I grew up in a world which was a combination of uh, a Sfaradi family, a Moroccan family from Casablanca, the family of Buskila, and uh, the combination of another Ashkenazi family, the Serf family, C-E-R-F in French, from France, uh, um, in a very, in the area of Alsace-Lorraine. And my grandfather, uh, the Alsace-Lorraine grandfather, Saba Eliezer, was a Haredi Jew. He looked Haredi. He went through the Holocaust and he lost so much of his family in the Holocaust. And yet after the Holocaust, the one thing he spoke of again and again was the fact that he was saved by a priest, a Jesuit priest. That priest, which his name was Joseph Fleury, that priest was not only a priest, but he was also the commander, the chief commander of the resistance, the resistance in the area in which my grandfather grew up. And at the age of 16, he met that commander and that commander gave him the ability to trust people, human beings who are not only Jewish, but others. So my grandfather, after the Holocaust, made sure to teach me as his granddaughter to trust people and to trust uh, the world in different ways. And um, in many ways, um, I, um, that's my little daughter who's eight years old. Um, shalom. She came in to say shalom and to show her ice cream. And, uh, and my grandfather's ability to see after the Holocaust and after destruction and after losing so much of his family, to see the ability of one person saving the life of another, changing the life of another, shaping the life of another, and reclaiming trust in human beings shaped my life. My other grandfather, Saba Yaish, Yaish in Moroccan means hope. My grandpa Hope, my grandpa Hope really grew up and grew me up in a world of Moroccan Jews who had left Morocco in Casablanca and arrived to Medinat Israel, to the state of Israel in 1949. As he arrived, the only thing he had with him was his prayer book, his sidur, his tefillin, and bicycles. 
And he took the basic calls and took off to Yaffa, to Jaffa, to look for a job. And he found a job fixing tires uh, of cars. And he was a vi- until the end of his life. That's what he did. He had big, black, rough hands and a soft, soft, soft smile and beautiful, good, kind eyes. And he decided on that very same day that he made Aliyah to Israel, when he got that job, as fixing tires in Jaffa, in Yafo, he decided that he will build a synagogue for Moroccans, and that in that synagogue, he will regain the trust of the people in their Jewish life, in their Judaism. So nothing made me think that I would become a rabbi. But my two great-parents, grandparents, in the way they lived, and in the way they looked at people, my grandpa from the Ashkenazi world, the way he looked at every human being and every believer, wanting to trust and believing that there could be trust between people. And my other Moroccan grandfather, wanting to reclaim the ability of Jews to trust each other and feel that they are part of something big and each one of them has a place, the Moroccans and the Yemenites and the Ashkenazim, all of them have a place. In many ways, they made me a rabbi since I was a young child. And when I saw slowly, and when I discovered slowly, that it would be an option, it could be an option, that there would be a woman rabbi in the world, very quickly I understood that this is what they taught me from the day I was born. And all these tools were there, despite the fact that it was so foreign to me. I remember until today the day in which a friend of mine told me at the university, an Orthodox woman who was married for a month, And I remember we sat down eating couscous. And I asked him, Danny, what are you going to be next year? What are you going to study? And he said, I'm going to learn to become a rabbi. I want to be an Orthodox rabbi. And I was so impressed. I said, that's amazing. Am Israel, the Jewish people, would be so gifted by you as a rabbi. And then he asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to learn to become a teacher, which I think is the most honorable and important thing to do. And I remember he stopped in the middle of the couscous, which is a sin for me, the Moroccan. (laughs) And in the middle, he said, listen, Tamal, I just heard that there are women rabbis in America. I don't know if it's true. I never met one. But if it's true, then I think this is what you should be doing in your life. And I was an Orthodox woman, married for a month, never in my life, did I hear about a woman rabbi? It was so new and so foreign and so strange to me. And I remember I came back home to my husband, Yossi, who also comes from an Orthodox house here in Jerusalem, and married one month. I said to him, Yossi, we need to talk. I just heard that there are women rabbis in the world. Silence. And Yossi comes to me and hugs me strong and tells me, I know you for such a long time, since we are 14, and now I know what you are destined to do in the world. And both of us leave the Orthodox world and go into a new world that we never heard or knew before, the conservative movement. And I get to know women rabbis who are reform and conservative and so many other ways and approaches of Jewish tradition. And slowly I see even Orthodox women wanting to learn to become rabbis. And I understand that this is the destiny of my family, of myself, and of many other women, which were supposed to be leaders, Jewish leaders in our world. 
This is um, an incredible story, and, and it's uh, beyond inspiring. Of course, the way you, you tell it is also, if it's not in a book, it certainly should be. And uh, I, I'd offer to help you write it, but I don't think you need any help in writing it in either Hebrew uh, or English. Um, the, the world you grew up in, a, a Sephardic world, which is very traditional Haredi world, um, like you said, this is one in the Israeli context where the idea, and again, to, to, to an American audience where, where it just seems commonplace. My mother is, is actually, who was also uh, uh, grew up in a Sephardic household in Israel, is today a reform rabbi in America. Um, but uh, it, in the Israeli context in which you grew up, it's, it's unthinkable, like you said, to the point where you didn't even know it existed. It kind of reminds me of, uh, what's the movie with the mouse where, where they hear there are no cats in America? So, so you guys are telling yourself, American Five tale. Saying, there are women rabbis in America and we can, <laughs> we can uh, go and Good explore movie. this. Um, w- did you have any kind of interactions between your upbringing and coming to this realization in the broader Israeli society to, to think that it could lead you in this direction? Um, actually, I felt everything was very much uh, startled of me, and I needed a lot of faith and courage in what I did. I think about your incredible mother. Every woman rabbi gave me courage. And I remember until today how difficult it was. I'll just give you two examples. Um, I remember my Moroccan family asking me not to tell my grandfather that I'm learning to become a rabbi. And for years, that was the secret in our family. What does Tamar do? What, what does Tamar do? And I always said, I teach Jewish tradition. And I, I, it was the truth. And I couldn't say I was a rabbi. And I remember until today, Independence Day, 10 years after I'm already a rabbi and I have a congregation, and I don't say anything, and I never say the word rabbi, rabbi, to my grandfather, Sabayaish. One day on Independence Day, my father calls me and says, Tamar, Mazal Tov, I just told your grandfather that you're a rabbi. He wants to speak to you. Good luck. And I remember the feeling. I was sure he was going to get a heart attack. And all the family told me not to do so. And for years, I didn't say anything because I was sure he was going to receive a heart attack because of me, because I learned to become a rabbi. And then I remember saying, Saba, Grandpa, how are you? And I remember how quietly and so sweetly, like good Moroccan tea, he said, Tamar, I never met a woman rabbi, but I want you to know that I know that you learn Torah and I know that you teach Torah and I know that you hold our tradition. It's wonderful. Good luck in being a rabbi. I hope that there are many more. It was such a beautiful moment. And another example that I could also give is taxi drivers. It's always, for me, that's the, the way to know Israeli society. Yeah. And it's I remember that I... The bellwether of any society is to speak to a taxi driver. <laughs> yeah. But, but I remember Israeli taxi drivers. No that's, a, that's a whole, that's a nation of itself. <laughs> and I remember until today that I would, uh, many times I was pregnant, uh, studying to become a rabbi with our eldest daughter, Halil. And I remember that I would drive with taxi drivers on the way to, to, to school, to the rabbinic seminary of Shechtil here in Jerusalem. And they would ask me what I do. And I was always afraid of saying, because every time I, I, I said I'm learning to become a rabbi, the answer was, why? What for? What disgrace? 
And they would say, and I would say, do you know anyone who learns to become a rabbi? And they would say, of course, my nephew, he's a Talmid Chacham, and he studies in the yeshiva, and he's incredible, and so, go on and on about how incredible it was that he is learning to become a rabbi. And then I said, so why is it different when I learn to become a rabbi? And they said, because you're a woman. And why are you looking for such a role in life? It's a disgrace. And it was fascinating for me to see that for one, it could be such honor and such an incredible way of life and a choice of, of shlichut, of a, of a role in our world. And for the other, it was a disgrace. And very slowly, I remember that I would notice that I say what I do and they're less startled and more appreciative. And I remember until today, I would teach every month a group of very high-ranked officers in the IDF. And I remember at the beginning when I would, and it was a different group, and every time I would ask them, did they ever meet a rabbi, almost no one raised his hand. And I remember the first time I asked them, and one of the groups, who here knew or met a woman rabbi? And most of the group raised their hands. And that was the moment in which I said, ah, and I want to say that I think in Israeli tradition, there's a lot of entrepreneurship. It's not that we are a startup nation because it's new. Jews have been creating new ideas. And Israeli society is so open to understanding the problems of, of reality, the problems and the challenges of life. And I think that Israeli society in many ways is becoming a very serious partner in the... I would say in the duty, in the joint duty that we have to make Judaism accessible for every Jew and to make every Jew feel that he counts and that he has a place in our life, in our people, in our society. And very quickly, within 20 years, which is such a short time, I see not only a difference between that beginning, that startled beginning, to a world in which there's a lot of support, but I see a lot of partnership more and more teachers, more and more leaders in many different realms of life that really give many different ways of support and partnership to make sure that women rabbis are heard all around. That's fantastic. That's and, and you, you mentioned the startup and, and you know, we've had episodes, uh, we, we had a, an author previously who wrote a book called Chutzpah. And um, ah. you know, it's something about Israeli society, I think, uh, that... On the one hand, there are people who they have their very strong opinions. And, and you talked about taxi drivers, and they certainly have the strongest of opinions. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's also a society where anyone can sit with anyone. And if you can, and, and anyone can get to a one on one conversation with anyone. And I think people are amenable, certainly, to listening and they can change their minds. And in and, and the journey, and we wanted to ask you about this also how you view Israeli society as coming to accept what you're doing from being. A novelty, maybe a travesty, to being okay. This is there to to being, you know, uh, maybe now or maybe in the near future. Hopefully, something that is so commonplace that people don't even have to say "woman rabbi" anymore. They can just say "rabbi" because you know it becomes so commonplace as it is in America. Right, and and maybe before you even get into that, I would, I would just say that it's you know something that I don't want to gloss over here is that when you were going through this journey it was during a time when this is not something that could be taken for granted and we say that today it's not something that's taken for granted but even then uh, particularly and specifically then even more uh so just 
your dedication through, you know, to see it through and to go through such a journey and when, when, you know, quite literally it was, it was to many people a slap in the face of the values of which uh, one was raised or the, the values of community and, and then other people in society who may not be necessarily opposed, but, but definitely think that it's kind of strange and, or, so, or so on and so forth. I think that's something that definitely needs to be mentioned. Um, but, 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 you know, particularly like, like you were saying, we're in a place now where there is such a, a, a sense of support from so many layers of Israeli society. And, and to get back to what Dan was saying, to see that come to fruition in terms of uh, how people are you know, willing to have acceptance of this topic. I, I think that that's a, something that's uh, quite, to me personally, uh, encouraging in, in the broader Israeli context. It's so true. It's so true. And I, I, and I want to say regarding what you say, Benny, and what you said before then, you know, Israeli society has many challenges and many gifts, but I want to mention one of the gifts, which I think is so crucial in a world which is challenged even with the very idea of family. Um, I think Israeli society is a family and it sees itself as a family. Uh, when you fight alongside another person, when you save another person or are saved by another person, when you go through a very tough period, and we have gone through so many challenging periods and frightening periods, slowly you become a family. I think, and in this sense, I want to say that the Moroccan world from which I come looks at life and at the best, the, the, you know, the pillar of life is family. For my grandfather and my grandmother, by the way, both of them, in the Moroccan tradition, if you look at the table in which my family, you know, lives, each one of them is different. One is ultra Haredi and the other is ultra secular and each one of them is completely different. But it was never a question for my family. All of them, each and every one of them and their wives and husbands and children, whatever way they live and whatever choice they make, they always had a place. It was not even a question. There is, a, 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 I would say, a value, and that value is called family. And I want to say that sometimes I feel, and it's very interesting to me to look at it, because the center of liberal, of the liberal world, is the individual. And I think that sometimes when I spoke to my Moroccan family, saying words of individualism, it was not easy for them, because they looked at me and they said, Tamal, you don't need to be speaking that language. Just say one thing. We are a family. And because we are a family, you have to be, you must be heard in our family. And I think that Israeli society more and more is going back to that Sfaradi notion, that very deep notion that puts in the center of life, not one person, but the family as a structure of people who are connected, bonded to each other, who are responsible for each other. Who am I to decide that another person who was born in a different way or thinks a different thought has no place around the table of my family? On the contrary, this is what makes our families so, I would say, so beautiful and so full of um, in hope. The fact that they bring a bit of the human family in my own family. The human family has not one face, that's not a, one fate, it's full. And I just want to say regarding that question of yours that I think that Israeli society is very much today invested 
in that uh, in that tradition. But on the other hand, I also think that it's also a moral conviction. And this does come from the liberal world. The moral conviction that we as Jews who have been carrying a tradition of values, who cannot stand something that is that has no value or that has no dignity or does not respect the dignity of the other person, that is not who we were destined to be. And these two values, the family and the love for each person and the dignity and the respect for each person, which are different, love and respect, both of them are two pillars that I feel are very, very deeply rooted in Israeli society. And therefore, Israeli society, as I said before, is really it's taking responsibility itself in so many different places, in kibbutzim and moshavim and cities and chilonim and dati'im and sfaradim and ashkenazim and women and men and young people and elderly. All of them are taking responsibility on their Jewish life because the responsibility on the Jewish life is the responsibility on the quality of our life. And it's that's a very, a, very important responsibility. That's a, that's a fascinating insight, um, the, the way you describe it. And, you know, the, the concept of, of American, and it is a distinctly American, it's a Western, but it's especially an American liberalism that, that puts the individual at the center uh, versus, you know, in Israel, uh, sometimes we like to think of ourselves as Western, but we're very Middle Eastern in a lot of ways. And, and in Israel, it's a group identity. It's a tribal identity. It's a communal. You described it as a family. And what that leads to, and, you know, um, I, I've written on this extensively, um, and you deal with this extensively, is some of the, the, the gaps in concepts of what Judaism is or what Judaism should look like between the two centers of global Judaism today, one in Israel and one in the United States. And a lot of them, you know, in America, um, there's often a question, and it's often brought in the form of an accusation. Why don't the denominations, and by that they mean the liberal denominations, the reform and the conservative, have a foothold in Israel? Why are they such a small presence in Israel? And and, uh, my first uh, book was a research uh, book on this exact topic. Um, And What's, what fascinated me, and I think this connects to, to how we can bridge this to our, our you know, the next uh, part of the conversation here. Here, that sense of family, the sense of communal identity of what we're doing, the sense of Judaism, not as something that stands on your own, but something that is a part of a much larger package of Israeli Jewish identity in which the religion is, it's a part of it to the point where people who do very many things that we would call traditional uh, fast on Yom Kippur, celebrate all the major holidays, Brit Milah, uh, you know, uh, sit a full Shiva and, and do, you know, they won't call themselves religious. Um, if you put that in the American context, that would be described as very religious. Oh, you're incredibly traditional. In Israel, that's just part of the package of what it means to be an Israeli Jew. And, and so what you have here, I think, is, you know, in America, what that leads to is, is denominations. As a sociologist friend, a colleague of mine described it, in America, anyone can start a religion. Anyone can start a denomination. You know, that's and, how. And they do. And they do. <laughs> that's how Reform Judaism broke away from traditional Judaism. And, and then conservative broke away and called itself that. And now we have all these new non-denominational independent trends, um, et cetera. And everything has to have a label and everything has to break away. And that's, you know, part of that ethos of American individualism that has much beauty to it. And in Israel, you find just as much 
practical, I think, liberalism, just don't label it, right? Do yes. do what you want at home. Um, mm-hmm. You know, keep, don't keep, just why, why do you have to label it? And come, like you said, come back to the family table. We're all part of the family, but why do you have to break away? Why do you have to form a movement around it? Why do you have to, you know, secede from, uh, from the country and declare your breakaway republic, uh, if, if we want to call it like that? Although I do think that in many ways, as Israel becomes more advanced socioeconomically, that Western individualism, individualism has crept in. I, I, I won't, Leonard Myers, I won't ignore the Reconstructionist movement, absolutely. Um, and one of the or, or the humanists. Or, or the humanist movement or, or any other uh, fabulous ideas and movements that come in here. Um, it, it is coming into the sense of Israel, and which is why you see that I think what, what you're doing, and, and this is kind of how we want to lead into the next part here, what you're doing is getting a lot of support across Israeli society. Uh, when I published the book in 2018, it caused a lot of waves because it found in, in an original survey study that we did, 800,000 800, Israeli Jews identified with one of the liberal movements. Mm-hmm. Now, when we compared that to the actual membership statistics of the reform and conservative movements, how many people are actually members of shuls the numbers were maybe 10,000, maybe 12,000 people. So how did we get to a gap of between 10,000 people and 800,000 people? And, and I think this is how you explain it, which is why many Israelis, and I think it's a growing number of Israelis, are open to what you're doing, but they don't need to label it and they don't need to belong to a movement because in Israel, you can change the way you do Jewish or be Jewish or whatever, you know, because it's all part of one society. So we, let's use this as a, as, a, as a segue to get into what it is you're doing. So tell us, please, about, about your community. Um, give us kind of, you know, a, a quick kind of virtual tour of your community. And we want to use this please. then to explore what is the Judaism that you are teaching, preaching, practicing with you and your innovative community in Israel? First, I want to say, uh, <clears throat> when I sit here and speak about Zion, Zion, our community here in Jerusalem, I feel them with me, all the people I love, and uh, they are my family, my spiritual family. I think people have the ability to be born into a family and also to choose a family, and um, I don't know how. I received the gift of being part of Zion. Zion was created in our living room. Yossi and I dreamed of it. And we dreamed of it because of what I told you about before. Um, If I think about Western society, uh, Western society is very ideological and it's very dichotomized. We think in a very dichotomized way. This is right, this is not. We think in ideologies. Am Israel here in Israel for too many years was very divided. The Yemenites didn't pray with the Ashkenazim, and the Ashkenazim didn't pray with the Moroccans, and the Moroccans didn't pray with the Kibbutznikim. And you knew the synagogue you would not go to. And I remember just the feeling of uh, asking, what does it mean when the family comes together? How does it feel? Is it a possibility, like in the Moroccan household of my grandparents, to see all my uncles sitting together? Could that happen to, to our people? And when I say, when I ask this question, I'm asking it in the broadest sense. I'm speaking about Haredim 
ultra-Orthodox, and I'm speaking about Chilonim, secular, and I'm also speaking about a place in which you have place. Could it be a possibility that we pray together? Could it be a possibility that our family comes together and there's place for everyone? As a mother, I remember the day until today that our grandparents, those very same grandparents, which I told you about, passed away. That Shabbat, Yossi and I, my husband and I sat together and we asked, what is our duty now? What is our role now? What did they give us? What is the heritage that they gave us? And this heritage is called Yachad, together. Klal Israel to be together. Zion, to be a place of um, excellence when there's place for all of us. That's our excellence, when there's place for each and every one of us. And we just wanted to see it in our very own eyes. So we wrote an email to three friends how would it feel like if Am Yisrael would come together? And we thought that out of three, maybe one will come. And 60 people came and sat together in a very crowded living room and uh, started Tzion. Tzion is a community that has many different voices. If you come on Shabbat evening, you will go through a tour of all the places in which Am Yisrael went through in history. You will see secular who come with shorts and a very short uh, top. You will see Haredi people who come from the ultra-Orthodox world. You will see people who are Sfaradi and people who are Ashkenazi. You will see women and men and lots of children who always sit in the middle and lots of elderly people who are our wise people. And you will see a community that gives us back, restores the lost property, Hashavat Aveda, of us of our family. I'm actually kind of shocked by the description that you just laid out because I have to be, I have to be completely honest. I've, I haven't been to your congregation. I, I know that I've had people that have visited Israel who have. Uh, I was not imagining that it would be such a, uh, what would be the word, a, a cornucopia of different types of people or different, it's a great word, different types of people or different groups of, uh, uh, of even religious observance in, in, in your congregation. Um, and that's that's profoundly beautiful, but at the same time, it also brings up a question of then how do how do you, as the leader of the congregation, uh, how does that affect the liturgy? How does that affect the practices in the congregation? And and how do you, you know, uh, uh, put the thread through and and connect everybody to to one place in one time? you're right. That's the biggest uh, that's the biggest work avoda. But you know, that's what chalutzim, the pioneers of Medinat Israel, they came to do. They came to build anachnu. You know, once upon a time, 70 years ago, they would sing, Anu banu arza, livnotu libanot. We came to Eretz Israel to build us, to build this place called us together. And first you have to believe that it's possible and you have to be part of it. You have to sit there and say, oh my God, how did I not know these tunes of the Yemenites? They are so extremely beautiful. How did I not know this and that? And you feel rich. You feel the richness of tradition. And then slowly you understand that part of doing that is friendship and intimacy of ties between people. Like I make room for my daughters and I make room for my sisters and I make room for so many people. I need to make room. And this is a work of midot. You have to work on values, the, the values of making place. I think, you know, the according to the mystical tradition, creating the world was making place. And so we work and we train on making place, but it's not enough. We have to know and be very knowledgeable 
of the Jewish tradition, of so many aspects of Jewish tradition. And many times I say that it's a, it's a project of giving the people their voice back. In many ways, it's a, it's a project of giving back the voice to the people because every Shabbat we would ask people, what is the tune you miss from your grandmother, from your grandfather? And then slowly when people bring in their grandfather and the grandfather and the grandmother, and sometimes the, the actual grandparents come, which have long lost their own traditions. And that is almost their last chance to bring them back to their children or grandchildren. There is so much kavod and awe in that moment when you reach out and restore lost property, that people dignify that moment and they slowly bring back. So there's a lot of work on making room. There's a lot of work on knowledge, knowing. There's a lot of work of peoplehood, bringing back the people and the knowledge of the actual people, families and people. And there's a lot of work of accessibility. You want it to be accessible. You don't want the Moroccans to feel that they have to control or the Yemens to feel that they have to control. So you have to give access to everyone that the Ashkenazim could hold that tune to. And one of the things that I'm so very proud of is that the people of Zion have very different prayer leaders. They have a secular prayer leader who comes from a secular house and she drives to Shabbat. And she is the prayer leader of Haredim. And you have a prayer leader of, uh, who comes from the Moroccan world, from a wonderful family of the Moroccan uh, history. And he brings so many things from his own tradition and the Ashkenazim sit there and we all make way and make room and give each other permission. We give each other permission. I want to say something about sanctity sanctity of life. Our lives today are full of so many interests. We're afraid of giving because we know that we might give a finger and people will take a whole arm. But the sanctity of life is when I know that I'm in a place, in a community that I will try. It doesn't mean, I'm, it doesn't promise that I'll succeed. Not to hurt. Not to hurt the person next to me. So many of us are hurt every day, feeling that we don't have a place for our voice, for our belief. Ideologies are something that wants to take over. If I have an ideology, it has to take over because it's right, it's right for everyone. Sion puts ideology on the side and puts the sanctity of faith, faith in the us at the center. And I feel we heal slowly through the work that we do, which just like you said, Benny, is a work of needlehood. Slowly we have to connect one dot to the other, one tradition to the other, to learn how it works when all of us sit together. And I wanna say it's never enough to do it for ourselves in prayer. Prayer is where we take off and we dream how the world has to be. And we stand against how the world is when it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. But then we go out to Jerusalem and then we work. We work with asylum seekers and we go out and we work with the poor and we go out and we work with the Arabs who are our neighbors in the eastern part of the city and we go out and we work and the us becomes bigger. It doesn't come on the expense of the particular people who we are and we are called Zion and we are in Jerusalem, but it also opens up to a greater us. And I think the project of our world is that greater us. The project of our world is to believe that human beings were destined to live together. I don't want to see anyone, not the American Jew, not the Saladi Jew, as my threat. I want to see them as my trust, and I want to see them as my future. And I can say that the Kabbalot Shabbat and the prayer in Zion gave me back 
Not only my trust, it gave me back the feeling of wholeness, of completion. Every time another person comes in and I need to make more room and I need to make myself a bit smaller, not in a way that cancels myself, but in a way that gives other people room, suddenly the room is bigger and Jerusalem is wider. And all the prophets taught us that one day Jerusalem will be a place that has many, many gates to many, many people, many Jews and also many believers. You feel that place and you feel that it's a possibility. Our world, and especially the Western world, is very invested in believing that if we save one individual, we will save the world. And it's true, and our ancestors say that. One individual makes a difference. But I think what is even higher than that is to save us. Our belief in the many, in the togetherness, in solidarity, in the ability to save us as an, as an entity. And that's what I see in our community that makes me choose that family, that spiritual family. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting because it's, it's a very beautiful thing that you're saying. And I, and I kind of want to, I'm not going to say push back because I'm not pushing back. It's, I know, you know, I, I know what you're doing is amazing and, and, and I believe in it full heartedly, but uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we live in such a polarized political atmosphere in the world that we're in these days. And it's very hard to separate our own individual beliefs about philosophy and religion and, and politics and our family values and, and these sorts of things. And in a way, uh, you know, what, what you said is there are certain times where we, where we put ideology aside and we, and we uh, you know, sanctify the, the value of, of, of the individual, the life of the individual and so on and so forth. But how in practice does that work if you have a very diverse, I would call it you know, collection of people who would be attending or be a part of the community? I'll, I'll just give an example. I mean, you, the Jewish religion oftentimes has uh, certain you know, tenets about uh, the way people choose to live their lives. So take, for example, the issue of uh, LGBTQ rights. Okay, for example, you know, if you have Haredi people who are in the congregation and you have very, very progressive uh, uh, liberal people who are in the congregation, do you then not delve into those types of issues because they're just so hot that you can't deal with it together in the congregation? And then, and then, you know, how do you then, you know, move forward and, and create community values in the I, face I'll of that? Back, I'll back that up. I mean, we had, <clears throat> we had a Haredi rabbi as a guest on the show uh, not so long ago. And there are some issues that, you know, the, the, the the, they're so axiomatic, like the LGBTQ issue, or in, in the Haredi world, um, having a woman be a rabbi, or, or this gentleman told us that even women aren't allowed to study Gemara, according to the very dry interpretation of Jewish law that, that he holds to. And it's not even an issue from that perspective of something you can negotiate or, okay, we can be a little liberal on this. So, the, the, you know, we're, we're very curious to know how that works in practice. And, and I'll add to Benny's question, are you halachic? And if you are halachic, in the sense that, do you, are you poseket? Uh, do you decide on actual matters of halacha? Do you, and we'll call it the hardcore of your community, if you have that abide by Jewish law? Or is it more of a, we're inspired by Jewish law, but we make our own decisions ultimately? How do you, you know, let's tie in those two questions together, if you don't mind. Ken, First, I want to say, like you said, Benny, it's not pushing back, it's pushing in. 
we should be asking right. these questions and thank you for doing that and i feel more comfortable because this is life life is you know i always say there's yerushalayim shel mala heavenly jerusalem and there's yerushalayim shel mata and if we really want to connect between the two then we have to be both on the ground and in the skies and to connect and to ask questions and that's it's very important what both of you are saying then what you said now about the haredi world i want to say that I think this is part of what I am, the realization through which I'm going through. I would even say it's a, it's a process of tshuva, of repentance for me, privately as a person, because had you asked me 10 years ago, I would say it's impossible. It's impossible. It's not, it's not going to work. You know, there's so many gaps. And it's like every time I, I love that you have trains and it says, you know, mind the gaps in America. I love it because you really should mind the gaps and it's a serious thing. But I think the question is what happens when you discover that in that very same world of the Haredim, there's so many different people with so many different ways of thinking about life and about the world. And what happens when you slowly create um, solutions for people to feel comfortable? When, when we said before, about uh, being an entrepreneurial nation, about the, this book, Chutzpah. Chutzpah means that our ancestors knew that there were gaps. They knew it. But their work was to find ways to bridge the gaps. They believed that people are serious enough and creative enough and the partners of God enough, in my language, I'll say, to be able to create bridges to go over the gap. It doesn't mean there is no gap. It means that the gap is a challenge that we can pass without making, you know, without fascism, without making everyone the same. Chas v'chalila, I don't want Am Yisrael to be the same. I don't want all of Am Yisrael to have the same Shabbat. I don't want all Am Yisrael to be conservative or reform or orthodox, of, even Sfaradi. I want Am Yisrael to be varied, rich in thought, Look at us in this Zoom. We are different. I have different eyes than you, different skin, a different combination. Maybe you could say, oh, you remind me of this and that. But we are different combinations and we were meant to be different combinations. And this is a, this is a, 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 this is a point of faith. I believe with perfect faith that we were meant to be different and live together. So you have to mind the gap, but you have to bridge it. And I'll give you examples in our congregation. When we start Shabbat now in the summer, we have musical instruments and we start one hour before Shabbat. And then as Shabbat comes in, the musical instruments go and some of the people leave with them and some of the people stay. And we make a combination of what people could hold together. And then we have prayer of Mariv, of Arvit, without musical instruments. And we find different ways to give a feeling of a possibility of combinations. People choose what to work on, asylum seekers, people living in this east part of the city, poor. Our attention is the most important um, 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 treasure that we received. And when we decide together to give, to hand our attention intentionally to what is important for us, but that there's no one important thing, there are many important things, but we want to be intentional people who hand our attention to what is important in life, then suddenly you understand that the, the important things in life are many. 
and their place for many of them. I want to say that many, many Haredi people startled me like my grandfather startled me. And every day I learn humbleness. Beyond ideologies, there are human beings who have compassion. And I have learned a lot about the compassion that human beings have. I saw human beings in our congregation which really believe that LGBT might be, they believe differently than I do. But when they see someone coming with his child, they hug him and they welcome him and they change. Family changes us. When I got married to Yossi, my husband, he changed me and he changed my family. Family is the most unexpected loyalty. It creates loyalty for the one person who is not me, who is different than me. Motherhood made me understand so many things that I never understood, not because I agree with my daughters, but because I appreciate the difference and I have a moral conviction that I need to bring to the world someone that is different than myself. And myself becomes greater because I come out of myself into something greater than me. And I want to say that this is the force of family. And I want to say one last thing. Family is not folklore. It's not a nice idea. Family is a central value. And it changes our perspective. And it gives us the ability to be more compassionate, to be more creative. And I think that when I look at you and I understand, unlike how I was raised, that you are my family, that I want you to feel comfortable in my congregation, then I become more creative and more inclusive and I learn to become more rich. And richness is something we have to learn to live with, to become rich with all this variation of Jews around the world and of believers around the world. That's, uh, that's true. And, and maybe this is the, maybe you're doing this intentionally or not, but it seems that the framework by which you approach these matters is we have to get along so let's find, we must find a way to do it uh, rather than, okay, we're just going to close ourselves off or we're just going to go do our own thing and just not talk to each other. Um, I, I'm still curious on, on a very practical level. You mentioned the, the solution you found with musical instruments, for example. So you have musical instruments and, and then right when Shabbat is coming in, you, uh, you put the musical in instruments away. So the, does this mean that the community... Um, it, at least when you're all together on Shabbat, is the Shomer Shabbat community. That's what it sounds like. Uh, what yeah, we yeah. yeah, I think one of the problems of, of you know, of compassion is that sometimes you you have to draw a line. Yeah. Our world moves between compassion and, and the ability to put limits and to decide, to decide, to choose. There's no meaning for freedom if you don't choose at the end. Yeah, exactly. So um, what we try to do is really to choose and to create a safe space. For everyone. So what are some other examples of decisions of, of decisions you've found, whether they're compromises or creative solutions, of where to put those boundaries? I've heard, for example, of communities that have a trichitza, you know, where there's a, one section for men, one section for women, and one section where people want to sit together. I mean, I've heard of that in, di in different kinds of communities around the world. Uh, we'd be curious to hear a few more examples, if you have, of creative solutions that you've found in that regard, that allow you to bring people of different um, of different halachic approaches of ashkafot together under one roof. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. First, I'll say that we eat together. I think that's the most important thing. And when we have a kiddush, 
we don't, there is no one who cannot bring food from his house. That's a very big decision for Am Yisrael. You know, I could have said, you have to be in such a house or such a house to bring food. We don't do that. We believe in halacha, um, which by the way is the Sfaradi tradition, Sfaradi halacha. The way we think of halacha is very abused in many ways because we think of halacha, I would say, in very um, legal, uh, in a very legal fashion, while halacha is really a, a, a way of life. And it says, I want to make sure that people eat together feeling that they're in, they're in a safe space. And I know, I trust the people in our congregation that when we say this is going to be a, you know, dairy kiddush, so they will make sure that what they bring will be um, appropriate for a dairy kiddush, but you have to trust. And one of the things I want to tell you is two things. One is, you know, lots of the problems we have today are about halakha and about uh, um, limits and about uh, the, these kinds of questions. I, many times I feel that when you trust, you give more responsibility to the person who stands across you. One of the problems in Israel is that in the world in which we live right now, which is very organized, um, I speak from top down to Israeli society, what we're allowed, what we're not allowed to do, how we're allowed to marry, how we're not allowed to marry, according to the legal um, uh, tradition of the state of Israel right now, it's very infantilized. It, it, it infant, I don't know how you say this in English, infantile, it infantilizes us. Because I need to take responsibility on my family and the people around me need to take responsibility. Once you trust, People know they are trusted and they become more responsible. And that is very, very important. And that has to do with the second point. And the second point is, you know, Shul, and for and I when I think about our ancestors 2,000 years ago, they understood something about education. Education doesn't stop when you finish university. Education is something that happens in synagogue. You educate people in the synagogue as adults to take responsibility for their loyalty to each other. And when you trust them, they're able to do so. So I find that one of the halakha, that system, I'm a halachic Jew. Halakha is a system that believes in human being. And it believes that human beings are able to converse with each other and find ways to live with each other. And today, halakha in many ways became dafka sadly, something that infantilizes us and, and takes responsibility from us. And I think that is a very, very, um, this is one of the most beautiful things that are changing in Israel. And I also want to say even more than that, you know, you mentioned Zion, which is really our, our families, I said, here in Yerushalayim, in our community here in Jerusalem. But I want to say that the second thing that I've created with, with my friends is a rabbinic seminary. It's a rabbinic seminary for rabbis from all around Israel, from north to south, from Haredi to secular. And you, they learn together. They, are, they receive smicha as rabbis together. They call themselves together, Rav Israeli or Rav Eretz Yisraeli. And I think this is an example for the ability of those people to really give kavod to each other and take responsibility for each other. I trust people who are going to take care of the person next to them. 
And this is what Am Yisrael needs. I don't take, need to take care of my interest. I need to take care of your interest. If I will make sure that the Haredi feels comfortable, and I will make sure that the Chiloni feel comfortable, and I know that they will take care of me, we will go back to becoming that beautiful, magnificent tradition of people who know solidarity day to day. But if we trust ourselves to take care of ourselves, halacha will not be halacha. It will just be a legal system that takes care of my interest, and that is not halacha. It's, um, it's a fantastic concept. I'm trying to figure out what that means in practice. Um, for you, first of all, you said they give smicha ordination, right? It's, it's a, a rabbinical seminary that gives ordination to Jews of all backgrounds. But at the end of the day, and 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 uh, I will push back here for the for the sake of developing the idea. Of course, you know, at the end of the day, when we give smicha, and and I agree with you what you said on the concept of um, of Jewish law of halacha, and that the the more it's become um, institutionalized, it has infantilized us a little bit. But at the end of the day, part of what it we you know part of what has happened throughout most of Jewish history, and it's kind of broken down a little bit. Is, is when you give smicha, when you give ordination to someone, when you recognize an interpretation of Jewish law, you're saying this is the bar, this is the standard we're setting. So you're saying I trust that rabbi or this rabbi because they understand the law. It's like going to a lawyer. It's like going to a doctor, right? You say I trust this doctor because he went to an accredited medical school, so he can make decisions. He or she can make decisions on my life, on my health, whether I should have that surgery or what medicine I should take, because I trust the institution. But what happens when, you know, this is one of the breakdowns in modern Jewish life is we can't agree on who gets to set that standard. You have, you know, if we take the medical uh, parable here and we say, okay, um, you know, this person went to Harvard or to Tel Aviv University Medical School and they're practicing traditional Western medicine, but that person does acupuncture and this person is, you know, an herbalist and, and that person kind of mixes all of them. And so who do you trust? And, and, you know, how does your institution deal with that essentially very fundamental disagreement in, in modern Jewish society? Maybe I'll say something about, because this is a very important question, something about halakha. Halakha is a language, the way I understand it. Halakha is a language that is nurtured by life and destined to shape life in the best way possible for human beings. It's the trust of God in us that we are able to create more and more a worthy life. And it is the Torah that we received that believes that human beings are able to interpret what happens in life and give it meaning and make the matter of life mean something in this world and to give it a tzorah, a shape, to give life a shape. Because the matter of, the, of life is everywhere. But giving that matter shape, that is, I think, the deep belief of halacha. When Chaim David Levi, Rabbi Chaim David Levi, who was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, he was one of the greatest rabbis. When he was approached by a young couple that asked him, what should I do with kisui rosh? My wife doesn't want to put a kisui rosh. Mm. 
uh, cover. He doesn't want. Yeah, thank you. Doesn't want to put a. How did you say that? A, a cover, a head cover. Uh, a head cover. Gone for a hat, but a head covering, right? So he could have gone to the books and written his tshuva, how he understands what a woman has to do. But what Chaim David Levi did, and that I think is the beauty of the Sfaradi way of Alakha, he went to speak to the woman. He went to understand her. He went to meet the way she meets life. And eventually he saved that couple and gave permission to that woman not to put a head cover and wrote it down for other women who live in a religious life. What he did was halakha at its best. He did not say that a woman does not have to put on a head cover. He did not stand against it or annul it. He did not stand against life and annul it. He stood between history, text, life, human beings, and wrote down something that you can live with, sanctifying the couple and their relationship and life. And he did it in a halachic way. And he was not the only one. You look at Rav Uziel. I want to say that Sfaradi tradition is not a legal tradition. Sfaradi halachic tradition is a language of Torah Chaim, of a Torah of life. And it's a conversation between the, the person and the, and the text. And I think that one of the things that happened, apropos what you said before, Dan, about how Western society, Western thought uh, influenced our thought, our Jewish thought, I think one of the influences of Western thought on, on halakha is that we think of halakha as law. And I think halakha is greater than law. Halakha is, um, I would say, which I feel obliged to, I feel committed to. In my own life, if you come into my house, you'll feel just like I felt in the house of my parents and my grandparents. But I want to say the way I understand halakha is that halakha is the testimony of our ancestors that Jews have found a worthy way of living that is a possibility for every person, every Jew to live in every generation and they have written it down. So we know that Torah is meant for each one of us to live and we will find a way and it's possible to find a way. You don't have to be an elite. You don't have to be an orthodox. Every person could be a Jew that lives a worthy life and has a high bar of a structure of a, um, this, this tzura, this uh, um, oh, shape. Yeah. form, this shape, that gives matter purpose and meaning and gives me a sense that I belong to something that wants and is devoted to give purpose and meaning to life. That's, In um, that I, sense, I want to say that for many generations, law was a very strict and a very kind of uh, aristocratic way of people looking at life and believing that they know how to do it. The Jewish people is not aristocratia. The Jewish people believes that a whole nation, and even more than that, could li live a worthy life, that it's a possibility. It's a populist philosophy. 
that believes that we all could live a worthy life, that it's a possibility and that I will never give up, not on the Haredi and not on the Chiloni, because I know that all my children, all my sisters, all my cousins, all of them are worthy to live a life because I know that what comes before Halakha is belief. And I know that God believes in each one of us. If God allows us to live this life and gives us time and gives us health and gives us so many possibilities. Who am I to think that there is someone who lives an unworthy life? My job is to make the best I can to follow the words of God, to follow the conviction of God, that each one of us has a place just the way we were born. That's, um, I, I love the way you framed it. And, you know, I, I, I grew up um, in in a kind of a typical American reform household. And I, I, I came to, to live more of an Orthodox life uh, when I left the house. And when, when people ask me, they say, are you Orthodox? If I don't want to get into a conversation, I just say, yes. If, if I feel like the person is capable of having a deeper conversation, I tell them I'm, I'm orthoprax, not Orthodox. And what I mean by that, I think it's exactly kind of what you said in that, that different, more Eastern Sephardic approach to how halakha should shape our lives. And that I came to recognize that maybe it's not all the direct word of God. Maybe there wasn't, you know, some eternal being whispering into Moses's ear as he writes down everything into the Torah. And so we don't have to take everything literally. Um, however it came to be, Jewish law, halakha, that framework of how we build a society is so, there's so much ingenuity. There's so much, thoughtfulness to every aspect of the human condition of how societies work. It's thousands of years of basically how do we craft successful societies that can get along, um, successful family relationships. And so I've committed myself to following it, even if I don't necessarily believe it's exactly the word of God or not the word of God, or how much is it the word of God, which is really where a lot of the discrepancies in modern Jewish life, or let's say where Jewish life met modernity have come from. Um, you know, I had a thought about something you said earlier about people bringing their grandparents' traditions to, to your community. And uh, it was interesting because, um, and I'll say this, then we'll move on to, to uh, the next part of the conversation. Um, you know, we have a tension in, in Israeli society, in modern Israeli society, in that- I didn't a lot notice. Of uh, oh, we have many tensions, of course. Um, <laughs> a lot of the early Zionists, the early Zionists who came here, especially from Europe, not from the Middle East, rejected Judaism because Zionism in its earliest sense, um, and there was religious Zionism, but Zionism in its earliest sense was a, a an exception of Jewish nationalism and a rejection of the diaspora Jewish religion, which they believed made us weak. And you know, the more that the ultra-Orthodox in Israel have become, I think, more self-confident and larger, and then isolationist a little bit, and then you talked about that approach. There's two approaches to halacha, the rabbi who could have just looked up in the book and said, here's the answer, the answer is no, or the one who talked to the person. And I feel like on the rabbinic level, certainly the level of the, the rabbinate, uh, the official rabbinate here in Israel, it seems to me that we've lost that personal, that familial, that communal connection of the rabbi being able to look at the person asking the question and saying that there needs to be compassion here, not just a dry interpretation of law. 
And that's why it pushes a lot of secular Israelis away from the rabbinate. Absolutely. At the, time, at the same time, what you're doing is part of a trend. And, and you mentioned people want to bring those traditions of, you know, I've called it before, um, people wanting to rediscover the traditions their grandparents left, left aside. And so you have these two trends happening in Israeli society at once. And they're, they're kind of counterintuitive, but they do go together. But no. I, I, want to that, I um, just want to say one thing, if possible. I want to say that I always teach my, my students that, you know, halakha, I think what is incredible in halakha, and by the way, I think it's different than law, is that it's a system of empathy. It's a system of empathy. You care about each and every dilemma in life, about food, about that person and that situation and another. And it stands completely against apathy. It's empathy standing against apathy. It's one of the most deep, beautiful systems that were created in the world, I think, and have really served our people. That's why we have been halachic. We walked, halacha comes from walking. We have walked in the world feeling worthy because someone trusted us that the tiny details of life matter, that it matters what we eat and it matters what how we do and how we meet other people and how we live our life, it matters. It's a system of empathy that thinks that everything matters. And that is why I think it's a tragedy to make that system of empathy a system of apathy and a legal system. It is wrong to do so. It is not Jewish to do so. And one of the things that we are reclaiming in this Israeli kind of Judaism is not only to reclaim Agadah, the beautiful things, but it's also to reclaim Halakha. But I think the one of the beauties is that Halakha is both narrative and nomos together. And that's what creates the empathy. It cannot speak in any way and form about law or give a regulation without meeting that specific person who has that specific problem. And once the, what I will rule, and you ask me if I rule, once I rule something, knowing that this thing is re regarded to that specific person with that specific question, and it's full of empathy, it can never be apathic. And it's nomos and narrative together. Um, that's a brilliant answer. Um, fantastic. Yeah. I'm just listening to this and I'm thinking about how much in my own journey journey uh, of making Aliyah to Israel and, and even my upbringing you know, growing up here in the States in a very normative uh, reformed Jewish household, uh, the, the uh, meeting of, of, of you know, the role of the rabbinate in Israeli, the outsized role of the rabbinate in Israeli society really kind of put me off of being a part of any sort of an organized Jewish community in Israel because it was such a binary of you either are going to be this Orthodox Jew, or you're going to be secular. And those are your only two options. I mean, I came at a time, you know, 18 years ago. And yes, there was there were pluralistic uh, congregations in Israel, but it was very difficult to come across. And it was a very, um, it was a very, you know, you had to very, you had to seek it out. Um, and and I think to this day, many people in Israel, my, myself, my family, uh, and, and even, you know, my my wife's family, uh, my wife is, is from a, a, a traditional Mizrahi family. You know, she's put off of trying to, you know, get into any sort of congregational life because she knows and assumes what that would mean is that there's some sort of an overarching, you know, quasi-government system that's going to try to, uh, you know, put things into a box. And I'm just wondering, you know, as, as we're seeing that sort of 
uh, change or, or I don't want to say break down, but we're start, we're starting to see cracks in the walls, so to speak. Uh, whereas the role of the rabbinate is con- is concerned in Israel, uh, how does the role of the rabbinate and and you know to an extent also the government uh, and, and even the change of government that we've seen uh, over the past year over the past months, uh, how how does how does that impact your congregation and what you're doing specifically, uh, and then also where do you think things are going? And, and wow. What did you say, Dan? After you say where are going, I'd love to also know where you think things should go. Descriptive and prescriptive. Um, I want to thank you for all these incredible, con- this, these questions and conversation. Um, first, I want to say I feel the difference in the past uh, months. I feel a very big difference. I feel many possibilities, even the, just the very fact that there are um, so many MKs, uh, women and minister women and uh, CEOs of government offices uh, who are women, that makes a very big difference. And I believe that this is part of what heals the world. So this is not only about religious and secular, and this is really Jewish tradition telling us that that there's place for all of us. It, Jewish tradition gives everything at the very beginning. You know, the first chapter is the chapter describing where we're going. So I don't need to say anything. I follow. I follow the Torah. The Torah tells us that the world was supposed to be a place that cannot stand indifference, that cannot stand wrongdoing, and that has a purpose. And the purpose is the completion of human beings. And in that sense, I want to say that I I believe, I believe that we should not be um, happy when things are not good enough. We should be working when things are not good enough. We should be working. And this is le'ovda u'leshomra. We came here to work and to guard our world. And this is what we have to do. And this is what Sion does uh, here in Yerushalayim. I see the difference. Uh, this Motzei Shabbat on Tisha B'Av, we're on our way to Tisha B'Av, to mourning on um, the destruction. I think there's no more beautiful way uh, to remember that and also to caution ourselves and our children uh, that it also might happen now if, if we don't live if we don't guard and tend this place uh, we will sit hundreds of people uh, with the city mayor and with uh, many mks and many ministers uh, and they will see a woman rabbi as they did last year and they will next year but this year they're much more and uh, the woman organizing it, Racheli from Yerushalmim, a movement here in Yerushalayim, uh, really organized, I think, a spectacular year, and very much because of the government right now, which is a combination. In many ways, whatever you think politically, I think this government is an incredible um, a, a manifestation to how Israeli society, how, how varied we are and how many very different voices could come together. And for me, this is an incredible moment to witness. And the fact that so many of them who are different from each other, not all the liberal, but from here and from there will come together. I think that's a very good uh, um, example for what we feel. Um, And I think that uh, this government 
has a lot of care for something that I feel I care for. And that is not only Jews, but also Judaism. And I feel that this is something I care for. You know, Herzl and Echad Ha'am, when they debated over Zionism, they debated over the question, what is the most important thing, Judaism or the Jews? And Herzl won. He came to save the Jews, the body, the people. And I have much gratitude to him. And uh, coming from a family where my family fought in the wars of Israel, I believe that we need to have a place in which we live and we are guarded. But the work we do is not only for the body of the Jews. The work we do is what's for what we carry. And what we carry is the duty of Judaism to have a vision for the world. Where are we going to? Jerusalem has to be a place and the state of Israel has to be a place and the Jews have to be a people that gives inspiration to all. In every system, in the health system, in the economical system, in every system, Jewish life is not a religion, it's a civilization. We believe deeply that it's a possibility to live a worthy life. And so if you ask me what my vision is, my vision isn't, is, it's not about money for this and a minister for that. It's way beyond. I want to see in Jerusalem communities working together, like Herzl and like the prophet Ishayahu told us, that people from all around the world will come to Yerushalayim to remember what they were supposed to be. I always say that Yerushalayim is in plural. Yerushalayim, like eyes in the plural, enaim, like ears in the plural, oznaim, because Dual. it speaks in the trust. Sorry, what did you say? It, it's something that exists in, in Semitic languages that uh, it's, it's not singular and it's not plural, it's dual. Nachon, right? it's dual. But it says that the basic foundation thing is that not one stands at the center, we stand at the center. So we Jews came here to Yerushalayim in order to stand together. Men and women, Jews and non-Jews, we came to stand together and to show what it means when we care, to create a tradition of empathy, a tradition of serious, responsible, adult care for each other and to create systems. And I think the state of Israel in the past 70 years has created such systems, but it could create even more. So if you ask me where I'm going to, I'm going to Yerushalayim. I always go to Yerushalayim. And this Yerushalayim that the prophets told us that has a duty in the world, that's the Yerushalayim I'm walking with and I'm holding her robe, her scarf, and walking with her and with my, my community. So in the, in the last 10 minutes that we have, maybe even less, because you, you speak so beautifully of, of Yerushalayim, of Jerusalem, I'm just wondering about uh, one of the things that you're known for is efforts towards coexistence in the capital, in Jerusalem, amongst uh, the Jewish population, your congregation in, in particular, and uh, Arabs in East Jerusalem. And maybe you could shed some light on, on what you've been doing, and particularly in the context of the past uh, year, which has seen so much uh, tumult. And, and ups and downs in, in, in the fabric, specifically in Jerusalem. Ken, thank you for asking this question. And I'm, I'm very happy to, you know, to on the way to ending this beautiful conversation, to be speaking about this conflict and about these dilemmas, which really is something that is ongoing. You know, in our congregation, one of the things I'm very proud of is that <clears throat> almost 
eight years ago when we started, many of the people on the congregation, like me, coming from Orthodox families, had no friends who come from the Muslim tradition. You know, we would meet them in the hospital or meet them in different places, but uh, they, they weren't friends. And one of the first mitzvot that uh, we took upon ourselves is to have friends uh, all around Yerushalayim, in the Haredi world and in the Arab world. And uh, I think this is something I feel so thankful and so much gratitude. Uh, on our Shabbat tables, our friends sit with us and we go to them. Uh, we go to their celebrations. Um, you know, one of the things that the community of Zion did, thanks to Evyatar El-Ad, who was the spokesperson of the mayor of the city, Nir Barkat, was to start a tradition of putting up signs, celebrating their holidays, which were not before. This is something one community could do. Just make sure that signs are put all up on Yerushalayim, celebrating and saying Mazal Tov when there's a Muslim holiday. These are huge things. Many of the people in our congregation learn Arabic. Learn Arabic. And uh, that's such a, you know, foundational thing to do in this country. And yet I never learned Arabic before. And it's so important for me to sit down and learn. And the past year, one of the things that we did was really to make sure to take care of each other, whether it's friends of ours uh, who uh, needed help. Um, it could be financial support. It could be different kinds of uh, help um, to make sure in COVID, that uh, we ask each other whether all of us uh, were vaccinated and uh, to take care of each other, uh, to pray with each other and for each other, we as Jews and they as Muslims, um, to support each other in uh, matter and also in, um, and also in um, soul. And I could say that uh, I'm, one of the things I'm very, very proud of is that in the riots that were here, you could go to every junction and see people of Zion standing alongside Arabs. And in every junction in Yerushalayim where there was a place where people gathered to say that we will not be enemies, we will live together as neighbors, as partners, you could see people of Zion, whether they were 16 and young, whether they were old and elderly, every junction that had people standing, I think had people of Zion and I'm so proud of being part of that community that will not stand silent and will not allow um, extremists to take over, but creates a bridge of people holding hands together and saying, we were meant to live here together. And I wanna say this about Arabs and Jews, we were meant to live together. I believe in it. I believe that one of the things Jews received in, in history, from history, was to come back to the state of Israel in order to create a, um, coexistence. This is part of our job to bring peace to the world. And, and so many Jews, so many Jews, Haredi and Orthodoxim and modern Orthodoxim and secular and so many Jews are committed and work on um, the issue of living together, of justice, of caring, of compassion of making sure that we have a place and making sure that uh, our neighbors have a place. But I also wanna say that this whole notion speaks not only of Arabs and Jews, it speaks of Jews of all sorts. And this is my opportunity to tell you, wherever you live, that uh, the care I felt for every Jew around the world and the worry 
I feel for every Jew around the world, whether now it was in Miami and everything that happened, I think is growing. And I think more and more Israelis, which in the past 70 years have been really trapped in many ways in uh, the fate uh, that we went through here, slowly are raising their gaze and feel more and more responsibility to what happens to Jews all around the world and to what happens to human beings all around the world. And I think this is what we were meant to do. And your voice and your welfare and your Torah and your communities are needed here. And whenever I learn of things that happen there in America or in other places all around the world, I'm strengthened by it. As I said at the beginning, I would have never become a woman rabbi had there not been women rabbis in other places before me who paved the road and gave me the ability to feel that I can walk through this path. So all of us have a responsibility towards each other to hold our destiny together, our duty together. And I think that one of the things that many, many people in the world feel that is that this world is in a very big question. It's in a junction of what is gonna to happen to this world. When you think about nature, when you think about human beings, when you think about the relationship between nature and human beings and between human beings themselves. And we have always had a responsibility to what happens in this world. And we today have a very serious one. The Christians have theirs, the Muslims have theirs, the Hindus have theirs, and many others from different traditions or beyond traditions have theirs. But we Jews have a faith in life. And I believe that faith in life is in itself duty. And giving people the ability to believe that life is worthy and that we have a possibility of living it together and living it well and to believe in life. That is what Jews do in the world. And that is why my daughter is coming in because this mm -hmm. is the future. The ability to believe in life. <laughs> Hope she has more ice cream. Um, Amen. How, by the way, well, we didn't ask, how uh, large is your community? How many people are involved? Uh, do you serve members, different, you know, participate in or not members? Well, when we're talking about Keilat Zion, um, the, the Zion community, how, what are we talking about here? First, I'm, I never know, even now with COVID, <laughs> because we did, because we did uh, Yamim Noa'im last year when we did Chagim, High Holidays. Oh, so we did the High Holidays for the first time, we recorded it. Oh, and wow. by the way, to your questions, we broadcasted it together with the Israeli newspaper Israel Ayom and together oh, with the Hartman Institution. We broadcasted it to 27,000 people in Israel. Uh, and oh. we did it halachically in a way that no one had to uh, violate his Shabbat or his Chag for that. And that was incredible. So many people came in and to, I don't know what's going to happen in the high holidays this year. It's yeah. a big question. So it's, a, it's, it's hundreds of people. Uh, and many, even even more. Um, but when you come on Shabbat evening, you I think you feel sometimes like in a kibbutz, and I like it. It's intimate. You can sit with 150 or 250 people and feel that you have a place, and you can come with sandalim, sandals, or you could come however you want. This is our slogan. Tavok Moshetim, come as you are. Yeah. And uh, I think you'll feel intimacy and duty at the same time. Pnimiut, internal, and duty, and we have a whole team and a VAD and a board and volunteers who are all leaders and they lead us to go to that, uh, to that direction. That's fantastic. And you know, you talked about um, coexistence in your efforts and we'll kind of wrap up with this thought. 
And uh, I've also uh, become really involved in this in the last year. And uh, we can talk more about this uh, uh, offline afterwards. Um, but, I, you know, th th there's something that I've noticed that there are some parts of the Jewish world that care deeply about the other parts of the Jewish world. And we saw that, we see that when there are spikes in anti-Semitism. And we see that with what just happened now in Florida. And we see that when there are attacks on Jews and when Israel is under duress. And there are other parts of the Jewish world that seem to care more about those in need outside of the Jewish world. And I think the beauty and the, the challenge, but our ultimate goal here is we can do both and you have to do both. We have to care about each other and we have to care about the, the other. Uh, I didn't mean to rhyme, but, uh, but it came out that way. Yes, um, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not. Um, I, I will, we'll, um, you know, uh, fantastic. Um, really an inspiring uh, conversation. And uh, it, it seems to me that you're, you're operating on a different level of uh, vision of, uh, you know, you're, and I say this in a positive way, it's like you're, you're sitting on a different cloud and, and speaking and looking much broader than maybe the rest of us are, at least uh, as far as I am. Um, you know, I'm just wondering when you're coming to the Chobot to open up a second uh, community like this. Um, maybe we're all thinking this of when you're going to open similar communities and similar models. But, but I'm also fortunate to be in a similar-ish community, though not nearly as, as visionary and as vibrant as what you're describing. Um, if people want to follow you, uh, your writings, your speaking, if, if, can, they, can they connect to your community and what you're doing um, from outside of Jerusalem? Absolutely. And thank you for everything you said. Um, I want to say first that I, for many, many years, for 20 years that I'm a rabbi, I've done almost everything bel you know, <laughs> speaking. Whoa. I think, uh, I think in a way it's because, uh, you know, I, having a family and creating a shul here in Yerushalayim, a community and creating a rabbinic seminary. But my biggest duty right now is to to make sure to write everything. Um, I don't, I myself am very far away from the world of Facebook and all this, but our congregation, Zion, does have that. And everyone is so welcome to be part of that and to read the things we write and to be part of what we do and to pray with us and to do kindness and justice with us. And it is not ours. It belongs to our ancestors and belongs to our children and the ones to come after. It belongs to all of us. So I always say it, that Zion doesn't belong to me. I belong to it. And I uh, invite everyone who wants to be a part of it to, to be a part of it in whatever way you wish. You are always welcome to be part of uh, dreaming and doing uh, Yerushalayim. I'd like to say, can I, can I just say that um, yes. CSP has a trip to Israel planned in October and um, they're planning to come to uh, wow. Zion. So for those of, yeah, it'll be wonderful. Um, and thank you so much, Rabat Tamar, um, for being here and for your um, inspiring vision and for sharing that with us. And Benny and Dan, um, what a wonderful program. And thank you so much for letting CSP host you. We look, CSP looks forward to hosting more nuanced programs with amazing Israeli Fantastic. guests. So thank much you. Much obliged. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, make sure to follow us. We are on Facebook. Just look up Juanced Podcast or go to our website, www.juanced.com, or just Google us. 
You can download the episodes. You can watch the live streams. We have fabulous conversations with fascinating people from Israel and from the Jewish world, and sometimes from around the Middle East with thinkers and doers like Rabbi Tamar. Um, so we thank you all for joining us. We thank you, Rabbi Tamar, for your you inspiring vision and um, what you're doing. I think, I think we can all come, up, come out of this inspired as we head into the uh, Tisha B'Av fast. For all of those who are fasting, uh, we wish you an easy and a meaningful fast. Uh, and for those of you who are not fasting for whatever reason, I wish, uh, fi find a way to connect to it in your way um, because it is uh, a communal um, day of uh, reflection and uh, at the end of the day, just trying to, to better ourselves to make sure that we can come out as a stronger Jewish people. So thank you all. And uh, we hope to see you on the next episode of Juanced. Bye, everybody. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com. And feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.